0: Welcome to the Molecular Moments Podcast.
1: In today's episode, we sit down with our guest, Professor David Berkowitz. Dr. Berkowitz is currently the Willa Cather Professor of Chemistry at the University of Nebraska. He's Division Director for the Chemistry Division of the National Science Foundation and a fellow of the National Strategic Research Institute at the University of Nebraska, where he's driving forward an exciting drug development program we are soon to learn more about. For normal people, these may be full-time roles, but for Dr. Berkowitz, who has an academic pedigree, including the University of Chicago, Harvard, Yale, the Swiss ETH, and the Max Planck Institute, this is all just another day. I'm certainly looking forward to hearing more about what all of this means, as I hope you are also. We're going to talk science as scientists do. So without further ado, here is another episode of Molecular Moments. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Berkowitz. I've known you for nearly 25 years now, as professor, friend, and more recently, an industry collaborator. We have so much to explore today, and I'm delighted that you gave me your time. First of all, do you mind if I call you Dave today?
0: Please do. Uh, We have known each other for a while, and it's been a real pleasure.
1: So what I'd like to do is start with us walking through the highlights of your career progression, and I'd love if you started at the beginning and we heard what motivated you to become a scientist.
0: Yeah, uh I go back to really my undergraduate years at you mentioned the University of Chicago and I uh was taking a fair amount of science because I think, you know, that I kind of grew up around it and uh the world seemed like it uh it needed science. That somehow science drove progress in in humankind, really. But I didn't know where I wanted to plug in. And I think I go back to uh, Bruce Gannum, who was a visiting uh, lecturer at Nebraska from Cornell, who was my first organic chemistry teacher, and John Law, who was an organic chemist, uh, sort of in disguise teaching biochemistry at Chicago. And I had those courses back to back. And I realized that, A, organic chemistry wasn't memorization. It actually made sense. It was like playing chess. Once you knew how the pieces moved, you could kind of draw things out. You could strategize and you could invent new routes, new chemistry. And then when I got to biochemistry, I realized, wait a second, aldolase? This is just organic chemistry. Mm -hmm. If I can understand it well, wow, there's an organic chemical logic to biology. So that really, it was those two teachers who turned me on big time.
1: Fantastic. We'll come back to the highlights of some of the areas that I talked about and what you're doing, but just kind of give me a a, a walkthrough of from maybe from you know getting into to graduate school at Harvard through where you're at now, just the you know the the three five minute sort of path.
0: okay. Well, I'll start, go back to undergraduate. And I mm-hmm. I took a course in, believe it or not, endocrinology as an elective as an undergrad, which is crazy to think that that would be a lot, even offered. Uh, but it was there, and I was like, hmm, endocr- molecular. It was like molecular endocrinology. And it was taught by okay. Joe Jerebeck at the med school because Chicago, he, he was crazy. He he had gotten an huh. MD, and then he went back and got a PhD, which okay. is very new to me, old fashioned way. He got both degrees. Right. And he's teaching in the college as well as running rounds in the med school. And he had a lab in the basement so of uh, of Billings Hospital. So as an undergrad, I knocked on his door and I said, could I work with you? I really love the subject of this class. And he said, well, I guess. <laughs> so he opened up a spot in his lab. He wasn't looking for undergrads. And I started yeah. working enzymes as an undergrad. And then when I, uh, you know, fast forward, I end up at Harvard. My advisor, Steve Benner, moves to the ATH in Switzerland. I'm in the library in Switzerland one day, and I realized two papers were published in the journal Prostaglandins based on my undergrad research. Oh, wow. he was very kind, Joe Mm Jarabek, and got me in the lab as an undergrad. Uh, And then kind of, you know, Steve Benner was a huge motivation as my PhD advisor and ended up taking me to Europe. Uh, and we worked at this chemistry-biology interface. I liked synthetic chemistry so much, I went to Yale to work with Sam Danishevsky to understand how to make molecules better, because right. that was really a passion that had not been satisfied <laughs> in my PhD. And then and then when I came to Nebraska, I tried to set up shop right at that interface because of these influences that go back to undergrad, but sort of were mm-hmm. pursued along
1: the way. Mm-hmm. So there's a few big things I wanted to touch on, but I'm, I'm really anxious to talk about what's going on right now with the National Strategic Research Institute uh, at the University of Nebraska and, and your involvement in that. So can you tell that story for us a bit?
0: Yeah, sure. It's kind of a, it, there are two things that are uh, coinciding here. One is the University of Nebraska has four campuses in Lincoln, Omaha, and then the Medical Center also in Omaha and Kearney. There's a system. And the system and the NU Foundation had a competition for what they called Big Ideas. Mm -hmm. And Ken Bales and I, Ken Bales, who's now the Vice Chancellor for Research at UNMC, uh, sort of entered this contest, if you will, with a big idea that has come to fruition, uh, which is the ND3P, which is the Nebraska Drug Discovery and Development Pipeline. So three Ds in there, Drug, Discovery, Development. Um, And that has aligned with, as you mentioned, the NSRI, the National Strategic Research Institute, which is one of about um, just over a dozen university-affiliated research centers or UARCs around the country. These are DOD-affiliated universities, and it's a privilege of us at Nebraska, at the University of Nebraska, through strategic command to have a special relationship with the military. And you and I have rekindled our relationship through the possibility of working on a DOD-funded project through NSRI in the general space of trying to come up with medical countermeasures for acute radiation syndrome. And we together, I think, had the idea that industry consultants, people who really understand what it takes to develop drugs, would be incredible resources to us in academia to try and bring in industrial chemists and academic chemists together around the planning table, around the research initiation table. And it, it's been now a few years and it's been, it's been really exciting.
1: Yeah. So can you talk to me a little bit about why are we moving forward with the acute radiation syndrome treatment and how is what we're doing different from what's been done in the past?
0: So you think about radiation, you think, well, radiation, uh, a whole population is going to think that this is going to be a potential hazard and we think about certainly warfare it's in the news every day now that there there might be a risk of either the uh, tactical use of a nuclear weapon or as you hear about in Zaporizhia you see a nuclear energy facility that's in the in the midst of a battlefield uh, or you think about natural disasters as we saw in Japan so there and then you know there's just a lot of ways in which we might come into contact with radiation where we a civilian or were we perhaps even more so part of the armed forces? Right. So there you see the danger. But then what about the thinking about this on a molecular level? Well, you and I have both learned a lot about something called acute radiation syndrome, which is a systemic malady that isn't so well understood. And, and the military clearly has an interest in the area, but, but so do you know health and human services elements for the civilian population. So the problem working on is sponsored by DOD, but the implications are much broader. And the science here, because it's systemic, is really broad. So then you have to think about hmm, is there a way we could protect or treat ARS? And there's not a lot out there. Mm-hmm, particularly for, for sure. preventing. So this is where this space is is not as well explored
1: as you might think. And can you talk about this difference between protecting and treating and why you have know, the different motivation between say the military and health and human services?
0: Right, exactly. So if we are responsible for standing up uh, a standing fighting force and we need to send that force to support the cause of freedom and national interest and international interests, and we may put them in harm's way, we have an obligation to all of those who choose to serve to put them in the best position, both to be successful and to be safe. That's to protect them. But that's a different question scientifically than once you suffer some of the consequences of radiation exposure, how might we best treat some of the the symptoms, if you will, or some of the mechanisms that come into play that are quite harmful, say, to your nucleic acids, your DNA, oxidative damage, Mm -hmm. and things like that. We're looking for something that prevents the damage in the first place. And these are scientifically two different questions, and they're not necessarily the same agent. And those experiments on what we sometimes call prophylaxis are more limited than the ones in the literature on you know, mitigating against radiation right. damage. Right. And, and so that's why our our scientific space is perhaps more challenging
1: and more open, and how many drugs are on the market currently for uh, the prophylactic treatment versus the post-exposure treatment?
0: There are several that are for post-exposure. But for prophylaxis, this is still. Uh, there's still a need for an FDA-approved drug in this space. And as you well know, Mm -hmm. this is a tricky space for drug development because we're under what's called the animal rule. We're Mm -hmm. obviously not going to run these kinds of experiments on humans. We need to find good animal models that are predictive. This This is a huge
1: challenge for the ND3P and for the NSRI team. Right, and in fact, I just uh, I just saw something in my in my day job about the animal rule, where someone was was asking when when would you not do phase three studies on humans? And I think the other common example is uh, is when you're testing for something like anthrax or or Ebola or something like that. Right, we're not uh, well, maybe Ebola. You could if there was an outbreak, you could certainly test a drug, but uh, but that's where the acute radiation syndrome comes in. Right, we don't want to do phase three studies on humans because the phase 3 studies are all about patients who would get exposure so instead i we follow the we follow the animals and hopefully the biomarkers of the of the effect in that process so what i think is really interesting about what's being done at nebraska is the way that you and and uh, ken bales have assembled a team to investigate and utilize the researchers at the university of nebraska to create somewhat of a Pharma company in a in a university. I I, fi- I think that's a pretty unique model, and I'd love for you to tell us more about that.
0: Yeah, right. So Ken and I like to call it a, a virtual pharmaceutical company. Of course, we we that's an overstatement. We know we're not a pharmaceutical company. We know it costs well over a billion dollars to bring a drug to market. That's not what we're going to do. But we, it's the spirit. That's the spirit of what we're doing. The flagship campus, of the University of Nebraska is in Lincoln, where you find uh, a longstanding program in chemistry that you know well, because it's your alma mater right. as well. I'm very proud to call you an alum. And many of our alums have gone on to the drug development space, like you, and they range from synthetic chemists, uh, closer to my lab, or you know, medicinal chemists who are making small molecules, peptides, compounds that might be bioactive to analytical chemists like yourself who are thinking about how do we really make the proper measurements that are needed and get the key time points and as you said, quantitate biomarkers so we know how the drug is metabolized and how well it's, how effective it is. Uh, So on the team we have in the chemistry department, we have synthetic chemists like Pat Dussault and we have analytical chemists who are in the omics space like Bob Powers And omics is a powerful tool both at UNL, the flagship campus, and the medical center, UNMC, where we have Babu Gouda, and and we also have Tom Helikar from the biochemistry department at UNL. And the three of them constitute this omics core that takes everything from proteomics to metabolomics to RNA omics to get data points, key data points that give a, a complex pattern that's associated with a healthy cell. Versus a disease cell versus a healthy cell we're trying to protect, say from radiation. And these molecular fingerprints that we get by using tools of mass spectrometry, NMR and systems biology and computational modeling are, you know really the state of the art and that that team has has changed the the nature of our science. And we, ha- we, have, we are lucky to have those people on our team. At UNMC, then we have animal model people. And we have in vitro model people, stem cell model people like Becky Deegan. And that is critical, as we discussed earlier, for a, a project like this, because there are different tissues in which, for example, you really notice the IRS initially. And mm-hmm. so you wanna model those, be that bone marrow, for example, uh, then, Can you develop an in vitro model, which is predictive? That's still an open question because this is a systemic problem. But having those biologists to work with the synthetic chemists, the analytical chemists, and then having pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics people from UNMC has really um, given us the multidisciplinary team we need to be a mini pharma-esque academic group, but having a group of eight of you who are our expert consultants, who come a number from pharma or you know the drug development space in the private sector to people who have government experience at drug approval to people from the military. That has been very special because we
1: get a perspective academics don't normally get. I agree. And I, I, sometimes I like to think that we're trying to work smarter. Uh, we're working hard, and they're working hard and smart at pharma, but sometimes I like to think of it again as as we're working smarter versus harder, or maybe we're working smarter because we don't have as many resources, but we have different resources that we're that we're working with, right? I mean, that's
0: absolutely. Yeah. You know, we have a great COR too. We get advised very well from our DOD lead, um, and I think. You're right. The resources we're throwing at this are, are much smaller than you would typically find in pharma. You got to start somewhere. And if we can seed a good compound or two, and we know that, you know, combination therapy may be the ultimate solution here, we're probably going to need to partner with someone bigger uh, to really develop something. Depends, right, what that winning compound or two or,
1: you know, or even biologic might be. So someone listening to this uh, podcast so far might be saying to themselves, well, a drug takes 12 to 15 years to get on the market and a and billion dollars, and, and uh, these guys at a university are nuts, and, and there's an immediate need for, yeah. for, for these uh, treatments or, or these prophylactic acute radiation syndrome drugs. How are we going to do it? How can we do it faster than, than 12 to 15 years and for less than a billion dollars?
0: Exactly. Yeah. So, of course, we think about that, and you know this well. Mm-hmm. So the group um, has, you know, surveyed the fields and the literature and interviewed members of drug development teams at small and large companies and really honed in on compounds that may already have had quite a bit of human exposure that have possibility. Right. Of course, that would be a potential faster track to success here. We're compounds that are relatively simple and that we can get at synthetically quickly, and perhaps move in up the development stage more quickly because they present less of a process chemistry challenge.
1: We'll see where that goes. But as you know, we're pursuing kind of both avenues here. Yeah, it's exciting to see how we're looking at some of the drugs that are already approved for other treatments, applying these omics and and computational approaches and all, you know, we're, we're throwing a pretty heavy stick at it to understand how these things work, to see if they can work for acute radiation syndrome as well, either prophylactically or or for treatment. So that's uh, that's really exciting and, and uh, can't wait to see where that keeps going. I want to talk about your work at the NSF. You know, your chemistry division director, this is a big deal. Uh, it really is. It's exciting. It's exciting to know somebody in this kind of a role. The NSF is something I think almost everyone has probably heard of. And unfortunately, it's probably not something nearly enough people really know what it does, even though it touches us all. And I'm in that camp as well. So tell us about the NSF and why it's so important to our lives. And
0: Absolutely. Happy to do it. Yeah, yeah, I'm very privileged to be the chemistry division director here in Alexandria, Virginia at the National Science Foundation. We are the voice of science, fundamental science for the United States. Our mission is sometimes called health, stealth, and wealth. If you go down to the lobby of the building here, you'll see A much more eloquent expression of that, but that is in 1950, we were created by an act of Congress to look out for the scientific mission, the scientific interests of the United States and keep us competitive as a nation. Vannevar Bush had the vision for the National Science Foundation. We're not mission-driven other than what I just said, but really, we're in Virginia. We're in the greater metro, Washington metro area. It's called the DMV over here, DC, okay. Maryland, Virginia. Gotcha. The NIH is in Maryland, right? Okay. And and they're in Bethesda and they have the health mission. We have the fundamental science mission. We're at about 10 billion dollar agency just under and we cover all science under one roof here. We are organized into directorates. One is bio, one is geo, one is engineering. Chemistry is in mathematics and physical science, one is computer science, one is education, one is social behavioral and economic sciences. Oh, wow. Each floor of the building is, is a directorate like that. So we're a $260 million operation in chemistry. I oversee 40 plus people and nine core programs and a center's program and instrumentation to meet out funding to keep us competitive across the country. Anyone can apply who's at a university, and we have a huge number of universities who get their basic funding through us.
1: It's really exciting, actually. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. So uh, let me ask a really uh, basic question. How'd you get that gig? How'd you you (laughs) land in that that role uh, as a professor in Nebraska?
0: Right. So here's the other nice thing about NSF. You too can work at NSF, I might say to everyone out there. Well, We're different from other funding agencies in that about half of our people, maybe just under, rotate in and out from universities around the country. And and so the rotator program, it doesn't really exist at NIH or DOE or EPA, but it's certainly it's alive and well here. The head of the entire agency is appointed by the president and approved by the Senate. His name is Panch, Sethuraman Panchanathan. He was appointed by President... Trump and he serves under President Biden. That's very common. We're apolitical here. Yeah, fantastic. that turns about six years. Division directors are often like I am, rotators from universities. Heads of directorates are also often rotating in and out, and program directors who run the individual programs do that. I started out as a program director okay. in 2010. I was funded by NSF. My program director called me up. He said, "Hey, have you ever thought of being a rotator?" And I said, mm-hmm. "What's that?" And then. <laughs> why would I want to do that? Yeah. He said, oh, well, you keep your research going on the side. We fly you back to Nebraska. You go back and forth and back and forth. Really? I don't have to become a bureaucrat? You mean I can keep my research going? <laughs> and he said, yeah. And I said, wow, this sounds kind of interesting. So it's actually a wonderful opportunity. And it keeps fresh ideas coming in and out of the foundation. We have people rotating in and out like that.
1: That's cool. So one, one of the things I realized when I was um, doing some background research for the for this podcast with you is that the NSF supports the uh, research experience for undergraduates. Right. right. And so again, on that theme that we don't realize sometimes how the NSF touches us. So I did an RU semester at uh, Pacific Northwest Lab uh, back in 1993. And that was my first real work with mass spectrometry. And since since then mass spectrometry became a core of everything i've done scientifically and if i think everyone when they ask you sort of what you are at your core as a scientist i'm a mass spectrometrist so so the nsf in that way really really touched my life and was the the trigger and the thread running through everything I've done in my career for geez, almost 30 years now, I guess going on 30 years. So, so that's, that's cool. So I am excited to see that. And, and uh, it was before your involvement with NSF, but thank you.
0: I, I did not know that before, Chad, that's really cool to hear. And PNNL is a, an amazing place. So that's, that it was is. very special. REU you, had.
1: Yeah, it was, I was very fortunate uh, without a doubt. I, and I didn't know it till I got there and I know it more and more <laughs> as I, uh, as I age and get further in my career. So so as you mentioned, taxes pay for, uh, for the NSF. And uh, when I think about our taxes paying for something, I think, wow, we should, uh, we should know what we're getting, but we should also take advantage, right? It's like if you have a library down the street and you never go there, you're, you're paying for it. You got to go take advantage of the library. So what can we do to, to take advantage of, of the NSF being out there to get the most out of it as scientists and, and citizens?
0: Well, a couple of things. First of all, we're open for business. Uh, The pandemic uh, kept us remote for a while, but I am talking to you from my office here in Alexandria, Virginia, and we welcome visitors. You do need to let us know in advance. We have security and all that, Uh, but we can, if you want to visit and talk science with us, whether you're from a university, uh, if you're a scientist or from the private sector, or you're a citizen advocate for science and you want to know what's going on, don't hesitate to contact us. We also have OPA, which is the Office of Legislative and Public Affairs, and it is their job to communicate with all of our wonderful representatives and senators and citizens who, who really want you know to hear the, uh, the outside voice of the, the NSF. The other things you can do is get involved in NSF projects. You mentioned the REU program. There are use sites all across the United States in all fields. University of Nebraska has one in chemistry. It has many, actually, in other fields. We have something called NPS High, where if you're a high school student, you can be supported in a lab that's NSF-funded. If you're in high school and you're interested in science, uh, talk to your science teacher, and they can reach out to a university nearby. And anyone who's funded in these general Mathematics and physical sciences means our our floor is chemistry, physics, math, division of materials research, and astronomy, believe it or not. So cool. Yeah. So MPS High applies to people in all of those disciplines. And we have programs going on and on. You know, later in your career, we have a brand new postdoctoral fellowship program called Ascend and a, a research initiation grant called LEAPS. These are also designed to increase excellence through diversity. We'd like our scientific workforce to look like the population of the United States because, you know, in biology, diversity breeds excellence. In business, diversity breeds excellence. And in science, diverse ideas coming at a problem can really kind of get you into
1: out-of-the-box ideas and really move the science forward quicker. Wow. I mean, like I say, there's so much there that, uh, that people don't even know. To take advantage of, I love hearing about the uh, the high school uh, reach out program. When we think about building opportunities in STEM, I think well, you know, th- things like that are fuel that can ignite someone uh, in in the sciences. So that's that's so fantastic. So, how much longer do you expect you'll be in this uh, current role as division director?
0: This is you know, when you work for the federal government, you serve at the pleasure <laughs> of the <tax laughs> certainly paper my boss. Right. It's a year by year gig. Chad. It is so. okay. I won't speak for my boss on that one, but I've really enjoyed the ride,
1: and hopefully uh, we've done some things that have been uh, exciting for uh, for the community. Well, fantastic. Fantastic. We'll, we'll keep up the good work. I mean, you and, and everybody at the NSF, thanks so much. I definitely want to talk about what you're doing at the University of Nebraska. As I said in the intro, you, you've got sort of three full-time jobs that you uh, take on, and I, I want certainly want this to be about you and what you do, but I, I, uh, I've I told you the story before, but I'll, I'll recount it here. I got my PhD at Nebraska, as you mentioned, I did it in an unusual way while I was working full time and maybe not too dissimilar from what you told about your professor, where you just went and knocked on their door you know, and said, I want to do research with you. I went around and just sort of shot myself around to professors and I knocked on their door and just said, hey, I'm... I'm thinking about you know doing this unusual PhD program, and I'm just looking for professors who would kind of support the idea. I wasn't even looking to join the group, and and you were one. And I, I it was at some sort of a gathering or something that I went to, and and you said Chad, that's a that's a cool idea. You absolutely uh, you you ought to do it. You ought to go forward with that. And and so you were one of the early supporters of me coming back and getting my PhD in this unusual way. And then you served on my committee. And, and when I asked you to be on my committee, my wife, who had you as a undergraduate organic chemistry professor, said, are you crazy? You're asking Dr. Berkowitz? <laughs> and I said, yeah, you know, he's supporting me. And I said, I think he'll be tough and uh, And you were tough. You asked me uh, you asked me some some challenging questions throughout the years, but uh, but you're also a supporter, and I really appreciate that. and And uh, I didn't work and do organic research as we as we discussed, work for David Hage, of course, which which uh, is a guy who's interested in chromatography and mass spectrometry is a great path to go down. It was, you know he's he's also had a fantastically esteemed career, and I probably should bring him on a podcast. But anyways, Enough talking about me and what I've done. Uh, tell me about your research program at the University of Nebraska.
0: Yeah, well, first of all, Chad, I have to say I do remember this was when I was uh, the admissions chair, and I remember you. Ah, that's why. Before, yeah, okay. And you were, I think, you had got a master's from. I had Mich- a master's
1: from University of Michigan.
0: Yeah, right. And you were really interested in applicant mm-hmm. because your path was a little bit different, and you were obviously very, very talented and yeah we wanted we wanted to uh recruit you hard and we wanted to uh and you had unusual ideas and that's even better so yeah it's been really fun to to watch you from an applicant come yeah. over and, and dave Hage is a wonderful colleague who's soft-spoken but carries a huge stick when it comes to chromatography and science a wonderful program he's built so yeah, it's it's an interesting path to to watch you progress. So I've been at Nebraska, gosh, three decades. It's crazy. But I set up independent shop. You know, when we drove cross country with my wife from New Haven, Connecticut, we were expecting our first child and our two girls that were born in Lincoln. So they're the true Nebraskans in our family. But I'm I'm a Nebraskan because I've been in Nebraska more than anywhere else. And it's been a great run. Uh, We operate at the interface of synthetic organic chemistry and mechanistic enzymology. Those are fancy ways of saying we're kind of at this space that's related to drug development, but perhaps more fundamental, uh, understanding how small molecules interact with proteins, enzymes, how can we tweak them, especially if they're really important enzymes in biology. And we specialize in vitamin B6-dependent enzymes, and initially, we were, oh, we understand how this vitamin works as a cofactor. We understand the electron-pushing chemistry. We're going to develop detour molecules that are harmless, but once they get into the target active site, they will be Trojan horse inhibitors. The enzyme will think it's doing performing catalysis, and all of a sudden, we've rigged the substrate so it will lead to a reactive intermediate and attach itself to the enzyme. We've done a lot of fun work in this area, but we, at some point, decided to stop just doing fundamental science and, and have an application. And it, it came when I had was waiting for the elevators in Hamilton halls. you may remember. Mm-hmm. Elevators <laughs> used to be really slow. Yes, they really were. Yes. And instead of cursing the elevators, what you could do was talk to the person next to you who was waiting for the elevator. So one day that happened with a guy named Brad Charette, who was like a transfer undergraduate. And I didn't okay. know this guy at all. And, and we got to talking, and he was interested at this interface. He came back to my office. He was a guy who was sort of extremely bright, hated class, but loved research. And he had been reading. He started reading more about vitamin B6-dependent enzymes. And he said, you know, have you ever heard about serine racemase? And it's, it's an enzyme that makes a D-amino acid in the brain. It's a PLP enzyme or a vitamin B6 enzyme. And Dave Nelson, who was a grad student in my lab, was also very interested in getting into molecular biology. Mm-hmm. The two of them convinced me to get into chemistry in the brain. So now we're working on PLP enzymes that are important in neuronal signaling. Okay. And, this, and we are one of the few labs in the world working on this enzyme serine racemase, mm-hmm. that makes D-serine, which is a really important coagonist of the NMDA receptor. And and its levels are clearly low in schizophrenia, this D-amino acid. We used to think all amino acids in human biology were L, were one-handedness. But this has the opposite-handedness. Most people don't know this. It's not in your introductory courses. It needs to get there. Yes. Uh, and, And this is elevated in Alzheimer's, in ischemic stroke, this enzyme is elevated. And H2S, which you think of as hydrogen sulfide, as a toxic chemical, is a is a gaseous hormone that we make with a different vitamin B6 dependent enzyme that's also important in neuronal signaling we work with wow. both CBS the enzyme that makes h2 s and HSR human serine racemase, the enzyme that makes D serine so we've come to a kind of you know neurobiological theme that's related potentially to drug development again, right starting yeah. with fundamental science, having some students who pointed their advisor in the right direction by I love you know, that. Waiting for an elevator, <laughs> but it uh, those guys were a huge influence on the group, and um, and they've gone on and off to do better things. And, and we have a paper I hope will come be coming out very soon. We have several papers on this new enzyme I was telling you about, but one that's in major revision, like sent in the thirtieth of November. I hope the next time you see me, I can give you the reference for that one that has a new assay for this enzyme that uses NMR and uh, has some fascinating new inhibitors that we found and some mechanistic information
1: so that's a teaser for yeah. our, our next paper on human serine racemase. yeah you blew my mind on a lot of levels and I I haven't read uh, I've probably read a few of your papers way back in the day but uh, had, you know I don't read your research regularly but uh, but I think your teaser caught me I think I'm gonna I'm gonna look for that one for sure so uh, that is uh, that that's really cool so how is being a professor? changed and and you know thinking about a science professor a chemistry professor changed from when you taught my wife as an undergraduate organic chemist probably 92 or something like that wow. uh, until now right it's been a few years so how how have you seen that evolve well of course you know I,
0: I think generations have evolved the student is different today than the uh-huh. student we saw very different and you can talk you know gen Z and all that stuff I mean the good side of this is The way we get information is so different. I have all these filing cabinets in my space that I don't use anymore. I used to copy papers and file them away. And now we do everything electronically. And that's good and bad, right? Uh, We can get information at a moment's notice, whether using SciFinder Scholar or Google or Google Scholar, whatever it might be. And, And Wikipedia is good and bad. But the key is know your sources and bank that stuff do we bank it so how do we bank information cuz it's good to have ideas banked principles banked in different areas so you can connect them talking to other people as we discussed earlier with diverse points of view like if i'm a chemist i'm talking to a biologist i'm talking to a computer scientist or maybe even an astronomer i'm going to get might get some out of the box ideas that are really important but how do i myself create ideas or if i'm a student how do we teach creativity right that's mm-hmm. the most important yeah. things critical thinking and creativity people bank less they don't really take notes as much as they used to physical notes or even ipad notes it's not something people do because they know they can google something so then if we ask you to draw something on the board you better have it banked if you're googling every time you try to construct an idea you're handicapped so we try to we try to Build a repertoire of useful knowledge, thinking skills, chemical intuition, biochemical intuition into the students. And, and more than ever, I think that interactive chalkboard experience, we can use slides. We use Zoom when we're, when we're in the same room because it's a better way of sharing information. And then we can have people outside the room. So technology's made it much better, and the uh, access to data has made it much better. But it's
1: the retention, that banking part, that's the bigger challenge, I would say. That's really interesting. Have you changed the process or has the process changed or evolved at all in sort of the the requirements to get your PhD and and, uh, and how you get there?
0: Yes, yes. Yeah? Okay. I, I did my uh, my tour of duty as department chair, of uh-huh. the chemistry department, right. uh, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we asked was exactly that. We set up a committee of the youngest faculty members, the newest faculty members, and we said, "Look at our graduate program and tell us what's broken and what's working great." Right? And they looked at it and all these folks came in and they said, "You have cumulative exams." <laughs> That's so passé, yeah. so passé. We all became really creative PhDs and we didn't have cumulative exams. <laughs> I did them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you and I are not gen Z, Chad. Right, right, yeah, right. No, and so we, uh, the senior people are like, what? Do away with cumulative? You can't, that's anathema. You cannot do that. And they said, yeah. well, what about if we replace it with something more meaningful? So we had this meeting of the generations there yeah. and they won uh, and we, we we changed the program. So we asked for... A a more advanced research meeting. Remember, we used to call it the research update interview. Yeah. Or no, we called the research preparedness interview, and now it's called the research update interview. It's the RPI, okay. and now okay. it's the RUI. It has a written component as well as a verbal component. That has been enhanced, and we have them give seminars. The seminar program we changed. We used to have. Organic, inorganic, physical, analytical, and biological. We had five divisionals. Now we have three to really emphasize the interdisciplinary nature yeah. of our okay. science. Makes sense. So, so it's organic chemical biology is one. Mm-hmm. And analytical, bioanalytical is one. Okay. And then PIM, physical, inorganic, and materials is okay. one, okay. which is kind of cool. Yeah. So you get cross-disciplinarity in the seminar program, and we have them talk about their research as well as the literature in that program as well. So they get not just to talk about the research of their committee, but to their peers. Those are some of the changes we made to emphasize research and cross-disciplinary research more and
1: traditional pedagogy less. Yeah, so I was probably right at the tail end of the really traditional approach, which, uh, which worked, right? But it's good to see that we continue to evolve because we need to do that in everything we do. I wanted to ask you a fun question, I guess. It could be fun. So if you hadn't become a chemistry professor, what would you have done with your with your life?
0: Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what I would have wanted to do, but I don't think I could. I love sports, okay? So this yeah. is going to sound corny, but it's true. Yeah. So I grew up in the Chicago area. Actually, I'm still a huge Cubs fan. Uh-huh. Uh, I was never a very good baseball player. I tried, And I play basketball, and I'm pretty short. So I made the freshman B team in high school. Mm -hmm. But sophomore year, I got cut. I couldn't make the cut. And I had a teacher who said, you should go out for track. He called me Burke. He said, Burke, you should go out for track. Uh, I'll keep you in shape. You'll love it. And I had long jumped, believe it or not, in junior high school and actually gotten a medal. Okay. So I said, "Okay, let me do that. So I did. I loved it. Uh And I wasn't, again, I wasn't spectacular. Then I had a friend who said, oh, you should go out for cross-country. Who was captain of the cross-country team. This is Hinsdale South High School. Uh-huh. So I did that. So I've been running ever since is the short answer. And I, I don't think I could ever have done it professionally. So it remains an avocation. Uh, and it's a little hard to keep it going when you get yeah. a senior, right? right. But right. Um, the Lincoln has an amazing marathon, the Lincoln right. Marathon. And it was always my goal to get up to the marathon And in 2014, I qualified for Boston at the Lincoln Marathon. So that's something I did choose to do, not professional. So not quite an answer to your question, but it actually is huge in my life. Yeah. uh, the running part. And we have, I'll tell you another story related to this. Literally is yesterday's news. Okay. Um, NDC, there's something called the Cherry Blossom 10 Mile Run. Every time the cherry blossoms bloom, first week of April. Right. Been going on for it's hard to get into it. But there's a special category, so it's a lottery to get in, right. called federal agency or government agency teams. Okay. And uh, my first tour of duty in around 2011, a guy named Mike Scott, who's a really good inorganic chemist and who was a rotator from University of Florida and a really good runner, said, we need a team in chemistry. So we put. he stood up a team, and he's now a dean at, in, in the San Francisco area, Mike Scott. He'd be a good podcast guy. Yeah, okay. You put up a team and it had to be co-ed and you took your first three and you could have as many. And we just found the results yesterday from the 2011 Cherry Blossom run. We knew we placed, we were fifth. We were called NSF Chemistry Cruisers. Guess who the number one team was among federal agencies for the Cherry Blossom 10 mile run in 2011. You got to pick your agency. (laughs) Who should be the fastest federal agency? Uh, secret service.
1: You got it. <laughs> I got it. You nailed it. <laughs>
0: yeah. And so if you go on their website, you can see the actual three ser- secret service agents. Not right. Blew us out of the water. But my name ah. is there on the fifth place team. along with Mike Scott and Amy Jacobson. Uh, and, uh, we're the proud fifth place team that year. So we're going to try and do it again. Yeah. I have an NMR person, Tanya Whitmer, who's a rotator okay. from Ohio state mm-hmm. and she's captain of our,
1: of our team for 2023. Well, that's fantastic. So, good luck to you, Dave. Is there anything else you want to share with us? Um, I, I feel like I could talk to you for another hour or two. I'm, I'm confident, but is there any other? Is there any other big things you want to you want to share while we have the time together?
0: I think the only thing I would say is we as scientists. First of all, thank you for doing this because I think one of the things we, we're a little nerdy sometimes as scientists, and I think you know, to me, what's one of the most inspiring things of the last few years is how science has so quickly gotten us out of the pandemic. It's just unbelievable. And this is very close to what we try to do in the ND3P, but to stand up a viable mRNA vaccine that quickly was remarkable. I don't think any of us thought it would happen that quickly. You know, HIV, we still don't have that vaccine, really. Right. Uh, Look how quickly that happened. And that that you need a methylated pseudouracil to get the right mRNA vaccine. That's chemistry. You need the right lipid to deliver that drug. So to me, science is all pervasive, and we need to get the message out to the community. That's why I appreciate you doing this. I don't think everybody appreciates the beauty of that story, and how important it is to all of us. Today's news in China is trying to relax restrictions, but they don't quite have the right vaccine yet there. And they really need it. Humanity needs it. And so I'm a little concerned, but -hmm. at the same time, I'm just bringing this up because it's actuel. It's right now. Mm -hmm. uh, And we need, as a a society, to not only invest in science, I'm very thankful here at NSF for taxpayer funds, as you say, that keep us going, but we also need to invest as teachers and as students. We have the best nation in the world, in my opinion, still, for doing science. And we need young blood. We need the next generation. It's a great living. You can There are many pathways. Chad and I mm-hmm. are both enjoying what we do, and we've both done a few different things. Right. Chad, it's been so fun to watch you as you move from company to company and moved around the world and been such a leader in the drug development space. So I hope you, uh, uh, as a leader, will continue to inspire, I know you will, young generation. And to the young people out there, bother us, you know, bug us. Uh, I'm sure Chad and I would both like to talk to you
1: about the journey and how it could be interesting for you. completely agree, and thanks so much, Dave. That's all for this episode of Molecular Moments. If you enjoyed today's episode, Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss a conversation. If you'd like to hang out with us outside of the podcast, we have many webinars and other presentations available for your enjoyment and education. Visit bioagiletics.com to see what's coming up and how you can stay in touch. And in today's episode, I'd add, go visit the NSF website and see what you can do with the NSF. Don't forget to keep an eye out for more episodes coming soon. We're looking forward to some great guests from across the bioanalytical field, pharmaceutical development, and other hot science areas. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Molecular Moments Podcast.